So you get to the point in your life where you've got to make a hard decision about something terribly important to you. Or you've reached the end of your rope and you're just barely hanging by the threads. Or a crisis broadsides you out of nowhere and it appears as though you're out of options. Maybe it's a job that's heading nowhere or a job that's been lost due to the downsize of a company. Or maybe it's a serious illness or a separation, an empty bank account, a wayward child, whatever it is. You get to the point where you need some help because you can't do it all by yourself or at least you're afraid to. So when the time is right, and the words finally come to you, you sit down in an empty room or on a hillside or maybe even in the solitude of your car, and you say something like this. Okay, God, I'm here. I'm listening. I'm looking, O oh Lord, I'm waiting. Give me a sign. And then you wait. Now, you've heard that this is the kind of thing that religious people do, right? I mean, Moses had a burning bush. That was a pretty fantastic sign, a bush that burned but was not consumed. Paul had a bolt of lightning and a temporary blindness issue. Moses had a rainbow, the disciples had loaves and fish. Old Zechariah went mute. You'll take any one of those signs, anything, just anything that will give you hope and a reason to believe. Show me a sign, you say. Speak up. I'm all ears. Frederick Buchner wrote about being there many years ago. His anorexic daughter was dying. Her body was slowly wasting away. She refused treatment. And the doctors told him that she would die without serious intervention. But Buchner said that after so many attempted times of ended in failure, he was powerless to change the situation. And in his memoirs, he wrote, I remember sitting parked in the car, parked along the roadside once, terribly depressed, afraid about my daughter's illness and the things that were happening within the family, when out of nowhere came a car that had a license plate that bore the one word in the dictionary that I needed most to see exactly at that time. That word was trust. Now, what do you call a moment like that? Something to laugh off is a kind of joke that life plays on us every once in a while? Or was it the word of God? He writes further, I'm willing to believe that maybe it was something of both, but for me, it was God speaking. The owner of the car turned out to be, as I expected, he writes, a trust officer in a local bank. But as far as I was concerned, God spoke to me through that license plate. Maybe God has a sense of humor, and maybe this is a way that God sometimes chooses to speak to us. 
It's not the kind of communication we expect from God. We look for the big stuff, the seemingly impossible stuff, like burning bushes and a miraculous healing and thunderous voices on high, choirs of angels and neon signs in the sky that says, wait, I'm getting ready to talk to you. Instead, we often get the painful, awful silence from God. It's not a preferred method of divine communication, but in it there is, if we have the ears to hear, considerable grace. I want you to look carefully at the way God chooses to deal with Elijah because it does not require a reach of the imagination to see ourselves in that particular story. Elijah is locked deep in a cave in the highlands of Israel, and he's having one of his Malox moments in life because the Queen Jezebel wants him dead for going postal with her cronies. Elijah's a prophet. More than that, he is to the world of prophecy like Elvis Presley was to the world of rock and roll. He's the king of prophecy. And he has a king-sized mission. You see, his nation has turned their back on God, and they're worshiping clay gods and false idols. Ever since King David passed away and breathed his last 100 years before, things have not been the same. People do not know God anymore, and faith is eroded to agnostic, wimpy superstition. Israel is dying a slow, terrible death, and Elijah is the last remnants of the way things used to be. Let me give you the whole story in 1 Kings, chapters 18 and 19. It goes like this. Then it happened. When Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab said to Elijah, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I am not troubled, Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed Baal. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophecy are for 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bowls. Let them choose one bowl and let it for themselves, cut it in peace, lay it upon the wood, but put no fire under it. I will prepare the other bowl, lay it on wood, but will not put fire under it. Then you can call the name of your gods, and I'll call the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And so all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. 
Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls for yourselves and prepare it first, and you are many, and call on the name of your God to put fire under it. So they took the bowl which was given them, and they prepared it, and they called the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud, and they cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, until blood gushed out of them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, and no one answered, and no one paid attention. And then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near him. And he repaired the altar of God that had been broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, and saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seeds. And he put the wood in the order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, Pour full water, four water pots with water. Pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Then he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and it filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offerings of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all the things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not want, let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishim and executed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, and there is the sound of, for there is the sound of abundant rain. So Elijah went up and, to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. And he bowed down to the ground, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now and look towards the sea. And so he went and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass that the seventh time he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, Go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot. 
go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the morning. meantime, the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain, and Ahab rode away and went to Queen Jezebel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and girded his loins and ran ahead to Ahab to the entrance of Jezebel. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also that he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. He went to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servants there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's. And then he lay and slept under the broom tree, and suddenly the angels touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there were at his head a cake baked in coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and eat and drank, and he went in strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I am very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone have left, and they seek to take my life. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountaintop before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind came and tore, tore the mountains and broke the rocks and the pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in a mantle and went out of the cave and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous of the Lord of hosts because of the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. The word of God for the people of God. Last prophet of Israel, Elijah finally snaps. Having set up a contest between God and Baal, he has won that contest in dramatic fashion. And he has the 450 prophets of the clay god slaughtered at a heartbeat right in front of old King Ahab. King Ahab runs home with his tail between his legs and reports the news to his dreaded wife, 
Queen Isabel, or Jezebel. And everyone knows that you do not mess with Jezebel. Elijah knew it. Jezebel rages, promises that by the end of the day, she would have his head. The king of prophecy runs for cover. And here he sits deep in a protective wound of a dark cave. He wants to die more than Jezebel wants him dead. Elijah wants to die. He knows that although he won the contest, he feels he's lost the war. As he sees that he's finished, failed in his mission, you see, his mission was his life and that he's failed. And so he hides in darkness in his tomb and wills to die. But God's in the business of giving people like Elijah a sign. In fact, as we read the text and as the text develops, we can't help the pacing, the promise of the text cries out for a sound and a sign, and we look for it, we wait for it, and when it comes, it is not what we expect. The story, as you just heard, goes a great wind so strong that it splits mountains, breaks rocks, and we say to ourselves, aha, now that is a sign. But the story says God was not in the wind. Shucks. Could have sworn the Lord would be in a wind like that. But the story goes on. After the wind comes a great earthquake, and we say, oh, that's the sign. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Suddenly things don't look good for old Elijah. However, after the earthquake comes a fire, and we say, that is even better than a burning bush. But the story goes on to say that God was not in the fire. Now, like Elijah, we wonder, is the Lord anywhere in the story at all? But after this fire comes a sound of sheer silence. Nothing. Nada. It's as if time itself had stopped. It's as if the world had shut down and all of life had held its breath, even God. Silence. Nothing. You know, it's bad enough when our spouses give us a silent treatment, but when God does it, it's almost more than we can bear, silence. In the pastoral prayer this morning, we had a silent prayer portion, 45 seconds. And for some of you, it seemed like an hour. In fact, I imagine that a few of you looked up to see if the pastor had fallen asleep in the pulpit. We don't do silence very well. We assume that when God's silent, God must be absent. So we tend to go where noise is. We play music in elevators. We play music in shopping malls. We put on hold on the telephone. We listen to music just to fill the space of silence. We fill the gaps of our conversations with nameless chatter to avoid silence. Some people leave TVs or radios on another room to avoid the staggering silence in their lives. We wrap noise around us like a blanket to insulate us from the sheer sound of silence. Robert Kirshner, in one of his books, 
made reference to Solomon's temple. Most of you are familiar with King Solomon building the temple for God's original permanent place on earth. And there was a room that was in this temple that was the Lord's room. And this was an empty room, had a single throne, which is also empty. And on either side of the throne were two gold cherubims spreading their wings over it. The room was completely silent, sheer, undisturbed silence except for one day out of the year, known as the Day of Atonement. This was the day when the high priest came in to make amends for the people. He had a single purpose for his visit to the temple, and that was to utter God's holy name in that room, which presented a bit of a problem, you see, because no one knew quite how to pronounce God's name, being all made up of vowels. As the priest would enter the room, he would stand slowly inhaling and exhaling until he would begin to hear the sound of God's name, Yahweh, Yahweh. God's holy name uttered with each breath could be heard and only spoken in the silence of that sacred place. Just to be sure that the high priest got the got it right, if he got the name wrong and was struck dead by God, the priest before he went in always tied a rope around his ankle so that they could pull him out and not worry with their own lives. For Elijah, something was not right. It was too quiet. It was spooky. It was kind of like a King Stephen King novel. Nothing but the sound of sheer silence. The silence, however, was the sign. Now, Elijah could handle the roar of the wind, the rumble of the earth, the crackling of the fire, but the sound of sheer silence put a lump in his throat and sent his heart racing. He raised himself up. He wrapped his face in his coat to keep from seeing whatever it was he might run into out there. And he stumbles to the entrance of the cave in silence. And standing there, he hears a soft voice, God finally speaking to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And as if God didn't already know, Elijah goes through his story again, saying, well, your people sold out. The altars have been destroyed. Nobody gives a darn about you anymore. And I got just a little bit carried away in my response when I wiped out Jezebel's special prophets and priests. And now I'm a dead man. It's over, Lord, on the last of your righteous moment, and no one's left but me. Elijah says to the Lord, the story's not over. The story's just beginning. Get up and stop wasting my time and get back to work. Why is it that we're so uncomfortable with silence these days? Could it be that the noise we work so hard to treat, create in our lives is a noise that we surround ourselves with is actually to conceal what's inside of us, the needs, the pains, the loneliness? Is it the sorrow and the guilt? 
Could it be that the silence we try so hard to avoid is actually the doorway into discovering who we are and whose we are and what we are and why we are? You see, noise is concealing, but silence is very revealing. And it just might be that the only sure way of hearing God is in the silence where we've got to literally strain to hear what he is saying to us. What is spoken in the gaps, in the silence, in the unspoken moments of our lives might hold more truth than any spoken words that could possibly be heard. Sometimes I think we must embarrass God, embarrass God with all that noise and senseless chatter. We sound like no more like noisy gongs and clanging cymbals than anything remotely resembling people of God. When Jesus calms the storm for his disciples who are frantic with senseless prattle, he, what does he say? In essence, he says, shut up. And I've often wondered if it was to the storm or to the disciples that he was really commanding because both became silent. It would be interesting to go out and interview people about noise and silence. I wouldn't interview preachers or politicians because they love the sounds of their own voice. Instead, I would interview teachers and little league coaches and mothers and accountants and barbers and fathers custodians, retirees, and I would ask them if they think that God is trying to tell us something when they see sun's first kiss in the sky of a silent dawn of a new day, or when they peek over a child's bed in the quiet darkness of night and watch in all the wonder and hush of the moment. Or when the power goes out and the TV shuts off and the phone no longer rings and the clock no longer ticks and there's nothing to do but to sit in the stillness and to think. I don't know what they would say. But I know what Elijah would say. He would say, get ready because the Lord God of hosts is about to say something really big if you can bear the silence just long enough to hear it. It is out of the silence that God's word is revealed and God's hope is born. And it is in the silence that we are called to return away from the noise where we can hear the music that God plays deep within us, the music that sends us forward, the sign of a new mission being revealed to us as we go out into a noisy world. Amen. Let us at this time stand for the singing of our closing
Our dear Heavenly Father, through your Holy Spirit, let us go out, wrap ourselves in silence to hear your words rather than their noise. And may the Spirit comfort each and every one of us here as we go our own way. We ask these things through Christ's name. Amen.